If you had an opportunity to be with us in Christian Life Hour, uh, you enjoyed, I hope as I did, a uh, presentation that Pastor John did. Uh, first part of a study on Philip Melanchthon. I say first part because I asked him afterward if he would uh, just continue what I think uh, time would not allow today. And so looking forward to that next week. Um, if you participated or even if you weren't able to, I just encourage you to, to enjoy that time together looking at history and uh, looking at, um, it's really when you look at one individual life, you're looking at uh, God's providence uh, in many lives, but one life that he used and uh, was instructive and helpful. I hope uh, it will be an encouragement to you. And thank you, Pastor John. It was a blessing. Was it a good week? Did you enjoy prayer week? If you uh, were able to give yourself to some time in the presence of God, of course we find sometimes where uh, that is a sobering, sorrowful time because we come to God and we have sinned against Him and we lament what we have done. But even as we go and we have that sadness and sorrow in our hearts, there is consolation uh, that God is a forgiving God, that He's a gracious God, that we as His children, uh, He hears. Uh, There are also times, I hope you experience this in your Christian life, uh, there are times of exhilaration, great encouragement as you meditate on the truth of God as you praise him for who he is. Um, The Christian prayer life is not merely one of intercession. I hope uh, as we grow in Christ and grow in our understanding of prayer, intercession is certainly a part of it. It is how we serve God. But there's also just the enjoying of God, uh, enjoying who he is. And so I hope the, the theme of enjoy your prayer life was uh, resonated with you, and I hope that you're able to just be encouraged. I was encouraged one day as uh, just made a list of uh, individuals who had some influence in my life towards Christ. And I just as I started to list uh, individuals who either pastored me, preached to me, or somehow a blessing to me, I just realized uh, just from that, only that standpoint, how blessed I am. And it just led to real thanksgiving. And I'm just thankful that our Lord is good, and as we really consider his goodness, there are many, many things to be thankful for. So don't let uh, the week of prayer go to waste. If uh, you spent time in God's presence and enjoyed that, of course, that's our opportunity all the time. It's not just a prayer week, as I said in the bulletin uh, from the pastor last week. Every week is really a week of prayer. So this week is is a week of prayer, just like last week. We just don't have the same schedule of of uh, cottage prayer meetings and prayer watch and and all that. But I hope I hope it encouraged you. It did encourage me.
we're considering today the, the Reformation and uh, sola fide, the title, the message, uh, faith alone. And I trust over time that's a familiar term to us. Um, as we think about that teaching, it's, of course, the teaching of Scripture, which is not unique to the Reformation. It's just that during the time of the Reformation, God shined light on the proper authority for his people, which is not man and man's teachings or man's traditions, but God's word. And so really, when you think about the cause of the Reformation, uh, it's really the same uh, influence that is shaping uh, from creation and through the history of God's people. And even as you look at the book of Acts, all the things that are taking place in the book of Acts are taking place because God's spirit is working through his word and his people in the world. And that light is shining and it's shining on darkness and darkness is of course, opposing it. And we know that the light is more powerful because it's God who's at the source of that and nothing can defeat him or his light. But the Reformation came after a lot of darkness. There had been uh, shadows and even deep darkness that had come to some of the teaching of uh, the professing church during that time. And God not only shined a light on the proper authority for his people, but he shined a light on the true way of salvation. That salvation, in terms of what God's word teaches, is by grace alone, it is through faith alone, it is in Christ alone, and it's to the glory of God alone. And what shows us that? It's the scriptures alone. So when we, when we think about the Reformation, that time in the 16th century that God shined a light is really drawing attention again to the true way of salvation, which had been revealed long before. But after that time of darkness, there was such an effect of the light that there were lots of changes that took place. And even to this day, observable influences from that time. One of my favorite uh, reformers to study and uh, read about is William Tyndale. William Tyndale uh, was a translator. He was an evangelist, a fervent evangelist, a preacher and teacher of the truth. And as you read about his life, he was martyred on uh, uh, the continent of Europe, although he was an Englishman, he was exiled for the sake of preaching the gospel and seeking to get the scriptures into the hands of God's people and really to everyone. But one of the themes that you'll find frequently in his writings is the subject of faith and not just the, the body of, of doctrine, the faith, but personal faith. And he often is talking about it, defining it, emphasizing it, showing it in relationship to the Christian life. Uh, in his uh, writings, he sometimes uh, wrote prologues to books of the Bible. And one of his prologues, he wrote uh, the letter to the Romans, and he said uh, a number of things about faith. Uh, we read from that this morning. Uh, Romans chapter one, but the righteous man shall live by faith. As 
Tyndale spoke of faith and what it is. He said, faith is the believing of God's promises and a sure trust in the goodness and truth of God, which faith justified Abraham and was the mother of all his good works, which he afterwards did. So he's drawing attention to even what Paul draws attention to there in Romans chapter four. He also said, but a right faith is a thing wrought by the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit in us, which changes us, turns us into a new nature and begets us anew in God and makes us the sons of God and makes us altogether new in the heart, mind, will, desire, and all our affections and powers of the soul, the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit ever accompanying her and ruling the heart. And so naturally, as you read through the book of Romans, you're going to see that matter of faith emphasized. It's emphasized here in the first chapter. Paul is describing faith as the instrument by which a person receives the gospel, receives the righteousness of Christ. As he wrote about the Apostle John and John's writings, his letters, Tyndale says, as far as his gospel as well, he says, for as in his gospel, he sets out the true faith and teaches by it only all men to be saved and restored into the favor of God again. Even so here in his epistle, he goes against those who boast themselves of faith and yet continue without good works and teaches many ways that where true faith is, there the works tarry not behind. And contrary, that where the works follow not, there is no true faith, but a false imagination and utter darkness. And you can see from even brief things I've read that Tyndale did not believe that good works were not important. It's really understanding the relationship of faith to salvation and how good works fit in. Do good works form part of the basis for salvation? And I think Tyndale's answer is no, but where there is true faith, there will be works. So faith, as someone has said, faith alone justifies, but those good works justify the faith. Good works testify to the reality of the faith. He says in another place, true faith in Christ gives power to love the law of God. For it is written, he gave them power to be the sons of God in them that believe in his name. Now to be the son of God is to love righteousness and hate unrighteousness. And so to be like thy father, hast thou then no power to love the law? So hast thou no faith in Christ's blood. And what he's doing there in part is he is tying works to the law. And that's important to remember when we think about works, when it comes to what the scriptures talk about with regard to works, it is the works of the law. Paul's talking about that in Romans chapter 1 through 3 and other places where the focus is not just good works, generally speaking, but the works of the law. And you can find in Tyndale's writings the theme of sola fide, faith alone. He says, after that discussion about the importance of the law, the love for the law, and Paul, remember in Romans chapter 
7 talked about his delight in the law of God after the inward man. The law is holy, just, it's good. He concurred with the law. He said that it was good. And yet when it came down to his own life, he realized that he did not always obey what he knew to be right and good. So he said, it's a good thing. But the fact that Paul even says, it's a good thing, but I don't always obey it. And sometimes the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And he says, so I find a law within myself. And what he's talking about there in Romans chapter 7 is the law of indwelling sin. He was still dealing with sin after having come to Christ. But that other principle of delight in God's law and his mind that was pursuing God's will by God's grace was the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, which he illumines, the Holy Spirit illumines us on in Romans chapter 8. But he does say, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Tyndale, as he has emphasized the importance of loving the law, he's not saying that that's a basis for salvation, but he's basically saying if you know God, you're going to love his word, his law. And he responds to a supposed reader who's listening to him speak, who says then, ah, well, wilt thou say, if I must profess the law and work, therefore faith alone saves me not. And then he immediately says, be not deceived with this sophistry. The thought that faith alone saves you not. No, it is faith alone. He says, withdraw thy cares from words and consider the thing in thine heart. Faith justifies thee, or justifieth thee. That is, bringeth remission of all sins and setteth thee in the state of grace before all works. And getteth thee power to work before thou couldst work. If you read what he's saying in that section of his writings that comes from his exposition of the final will and testament of a man named William Tracy, you find him arguing that it is faith alone that justifies the sinner. It's faith alone that brings remission of all sins. That sets us a person in a state of grace before any good works. And he would say, and I think in light of the discussion even to this point, you can see why he would say this. Good works are necessary, but not as a means of appeasing God or somehow earning his favor so that he will save you. Good works are necessary to prove the sincerity of our faith. And that's some of what James' point was there in James chapter 2, that faith without works is dead. There's a problem with someone who says, I have faith, but they don't have anything to back it up. You have that kind of faith. You have the kind of faith, James says, of demons. Demons have that kind of faith. They have a belief in one God. He says, you do well to believe that. The demons also believe that, and they tremble. They're not rightly related to God through faith. So James is really in agreement with Paul. Paul said, for by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
right? But what does he say in verse 10 in that chapter? He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which is really consistent with what Tyndale says there, that God sets you in a state of grace before all works. It's only by faith. But then as he saves a person, they are changed. There's a difference in their life. One of my teachers used to say, grace never left a man where it found him. Changes a person's life. So if you say you have grace, you have been saved, but nothing has changed in your life. Where's the proof? Where's the proof? Tyndale says our deeds are the effect of righteousness and thereto an outward testimony and certifying of the inward righteousness. And when I say faith justifies, the understanding is that faith receives the justifying. God promises to forgive our sins and to impute us for full righteous. And that, that way he puts that, at least the way the trans, if someone translated that, they, maybe they didn't, it was just his words, but it just doesn't sound like, what's he saying there? I had to several times just think about how is he saying that? I'll, I'll read that again. God promises or promiseth to forgive us our sins and to impute us for full righteous. We might not say it that way. He goes on. He says, God justifieth us actively. That is to say, forgiveth us and reckoneth us for full righteous. In other words, we're righteous in his sight. He reckons that. That's the word that Tyndale uses. And then he says, and Christ's blood deserves it, and faith in the promise receives that and certifies the conscience thereof. So what does he mean by God promising to forgive our sins and impute us for full righteous? He's talking about justification by faith alone. And the effects of that act of God when God justifies us by faith alone. Sola fide. Now, if you read the other reformers, and uh, whether it's Melanchthon or Luther or John Calvin or some of the other their associates, uh, you'll find them writing about this doctrine of justification, and it is a very critical doctrine. It's an important one for us to study. It's important for us to be reminded of. We're reminded of this from time to time through our teaching. We go through passages of scripture and this truth comes to the forefront and we spend some time thinking about it, but it's a good thing to review this doctrine. It's such a precious doctrine for us. I hope it's precious to you. What is justification? Thomas Watson, Puritan, a little later time period, but really the you might say they continued the Reformation by their teachings as they followed the Reformers. Watson says, it's a word borrowed from the law courts, wherein a person, is a, a person arraigned is pronounced righteous and openly absolved. God, in justifying a person, pronounces him to be righteous and looks upon him as if he had not sinned. God, in justifying a person, pronounces him to be righteous and looks upon him as if he had not sinned. Now, we have examples of passages in the Bible that talk about law, 
and talk about this matter of justification. If you want to turn to Exodus chapter 23 in your Bible, this is not a context that is teaching this doctrine per se with regard to salvation, but it is talking about justification. The justification of a judge declaring someone guilty or righteous. Exodus chapter 23, verse 6, I'll start there. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. Okay, God says, I will not acquit the guilty. Another translation, the net translation says, keep your distance from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent, the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked, using that word. I will not declare them righteous. The acquittal means the person is released. The charge against them is false, or at least regarded to be false. But God says, I will not justify the wicked. Turn over, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs chapter 17. There are other passages, Deuteronomy, that use the same kind of a context. Isaiah uses an illustration of injustice when someone would do exactly what God says not to do. But look at Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked declares righteous the wicked. That's the idea. And he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Okay, now you can certainly think in terms of scripture when injustice was done, when someone who was righteous was condemned. And you can see that God hates that. That's what Jezebel and Ahab did to Naboth as she set up false witnesses against Naboth and accused him of cursing God and the king, which he had not done, and he was condemned and put to death. God hates that. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. But if you justify the righteous... You declare the righteous to be righteous in consistency with what the truth is. And if you condemn the wicked, then that's pleasing to God. That's what God does. That's how he judges righteously. Someone who's guilty is guilty. And really, I think you can see based on the context in other places, even what we saw back in Exodus, that we're talking about the pronouncement of a verdict. In the court of law, if the judge looks at the law, the charges against the criminal and says not guilty, he's giving a justification. That person is innocent from the charges and can be released. And obviously the opposite could be true as well. But when we consider this doctrine of justification and we're talking about salvation, not just talking about one instance, but all of our lives and everything, when God justifies a sinner, this is a reference to God declaring a sinner to be righteous in his sight. If you turn back to Romans chapter 3, 
Romans chapter 3. Verse 21, start there. We're going to come back to this. But verse 21, it says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so he's talking about all people being sinners, but then justification, the possibility of justification as a gift by God's grace. And it has something to do with the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. And we could say this morning that without Jesus Christ, there would be no, for us, justification as sinners. So this is not the idea of God making us righteous or treating us as righteous. It means to declare someone to be righteous. It's a pronouncement. One writer said to be justified means to be acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against a person because of his or her sins. Jonathan Edwards, as he defined it, as he preached on the subject and wrote on the subject of justification by faith alone, he said a person is said to be justified when he is approved of God as free from the guilt of sin and its deserved punishment, and as having that righteousness belonging to him that entitles him to the reward of life. I'll read that again just to get some clarity in our minds, we think about this matter of justification. A person is said to be justified when he is approved of God as free from the guilt of sin and its deserved punishment, and as having that righteousness belonging to him that entitles to the reward of life. Now, how is that possible that I could have righteousness? that I, as a sinner, and we're all sinners. There's not a one of us in this room that's not a sinner. Romans chapter 3, that's one of Paul's points. Verse 9, if you look back there, everyone is in need of justification. This would be a first major point here regarding justification after defining it. Verse 9, he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. By the mention of Greeks there, he's referring to everyone representatively who is not a Jew. So it's the whole human race. And where has he already charged that? Well, read chapters 1 and 2 and 3 up to this point. He's been arguing that all men are under condemnation because of their sin. He says all are under sin. As it is written, that teaching that he's just gone through is consistent with what the Old Testament teaches about sinfulness and sinners. Verse 10, it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Verse 11 
There's, there's no one who has done good that can be accepted before God on the basis of their own works. Apart from, obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're in the line of Adam, which we all are, and we sinned in Adam, and then in our lives we sin, every single one of us is unrighteous before God. We're all under sin. Paul goes on as he quotes scripture, verse 13, to show the the depth of our sinfulness. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. And the beginning of knowledge, the fear of God, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So no one is righteous, and we are all together unrighteous. Jonathan Edwards, as he spoke about this passage, called the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the feet, the eyes, all these channels of corruption. He says sinful men are full of sin full of principles and acts of sin. Their guilt is like great mountains heaped one upon another till the pile has grown up to heaven. They are totally corrupt in every part and all their faculties and all the principles of their nature, their understandings and wills, and in all their dispositions and affections, their heads, their hearts are totally depraved. All the members of their bodies are only instruments of sin and all their senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, etc., are only inlets and outlets of sin, channels of corruption. There is nothing but sin, no good at all. There's pride, there is enmity or hatred, there's contempt, there's quarreling, there's atheism, there's blasphemy. These are things in exceeding strength. The heart is under the power of them, is sold under sin, and is a perfect slave to it. There's hard-heartedness, there's obstinacy and perverseness, incorrigibleness and inflexibleness in sin that will not be overcome by threatenings or promises by awakenings or encouragements, by judgments or mercies, neither that by which is neither by that which is terrifying nor that which is winning. And I think he means persuasive there. And there are actual wickednesses without number or measure. There are breaches of every command in thought, word, and deed, a life full of sin, days and nights filled up with sin, mercies abused and frowns despised. Mercy and justice and all the divine perfections trampled on, and the honor of each person in the Trinity trod in the dirt. Now, what he's trying to show in that sermon is that God is just to condemn sinners. And he is. He would be just to condemn all of us apart from Christ. Sign us to eternity in hell forever. Lake of eternal fire. And that will be the lot for some. That's not to say, and I don't believe in his teaching, he taught that that means that every person is as wicked as they could be but we're totally depraved. We're wicked in every way. Apart from God's grace and mercy, 
where would you or I be? Now, Paul's point after verse 18, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. He's talking to the Jews there. He says, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. If you thought that the works of the law were somehow your ticket by your supposed obedience to salvation, Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. And he's proven that in chapter 2. And then he says it outright, verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's actually the law that is the instrument, the tutor that leads us to Christ. It points us and shows us what sin is. John said sin is the transgression of the law. So when the law is shined on the sinner, we fall short, far short. And don't think that the law only deals with the outer person. The law is spiritual, Paul says in Romans chapter 7. It also deals with your inner man, your inner person. Love for the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is a sin that can be broken in the heart and is broken in the heart daily. So we've broken the greatest commandment. Just multiply that by all the other commands that we've broken. No flesh is going to be justified by the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. When Jesus is doing evangelism in the Gospels, he's pointing people to the law, people who claim to have some kind of righteousness. Remember the man, he said, I've kept all these things from my youth up. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. Why did that man not follow Jesus? Because he loved his possessions more than he loved God. He had an idol. He broke the last commandment because he coveted. He broke the first commandment because he had another God before the one true God, and he wouldn't follow God's son. So by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Through, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, there's certainly application when we preach the gospel and we want to show someone their need for Christ. We have to point them to the law of God, which shows them their sinfulness by which they will come to realize they need a Savior. If I realize that I'm condemned and I have sinned against the holy God and there's nothing that I can do in order to reverse that or please him by my works, I have to trust in something else. And praise God, there's something else. There's the righteousness of Christ, which if I put my trust in the righteousness of Christ and I rely upon him alone and what he's done for me by God's grace, there's salvation through faith in Christ alone. So no, this husband who wrote a tribute to his wife was mistaken. Here lies Regina, he said, covered by such a tomb that her husband set up as fitting to his love after twice 10 years. She spent with him one year, four months, and eight days more. She will live again, return to the light again, for she can hope that she will rise to the life promised, as is our true faith, to the worthy and to the pious, in that she has deserved to possess an abode in the hallowed land. This your piety has assured you, this your chaste life, this love for your people, this your observance of the law, your devotion to your wedlock, the glory of which was dear to you. 
For all these deeds, your hope of the future is assured. And this your sorrowing husband seeks his comfort. How much of a contrast is that to just a simple statement on another tombstone? An epitaph, just three words, saved by grace. Saved by grace. Not a proclamation of your own goodness. John Newton's epitaph reads, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he'd long labored to destroy. That's an epitaph that points to the real reason someone can be saved. Rich mercy, saved by grace. If you're boasting in your works, you're boasting in something you can do when it took the blood of the Son of God to cover the sins of sinners and his righteousness to earn the righteousness that's then imputed. You're offering is too poor and sinful and weak and will never gain favor with God. But realize God was the one who sent his son. God was the one who loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So when you think about the plan of salvation that God, of course, devised as he sent his son, he's made it possible for us as wicked sinners to have salvation through faith alone. Not through trusting in our works, not through doing things that I believe might gain me favor with God, even the commands of God. I can never keep that law perfectly, and that is the standard. If you offend in one point, James says, you're guilty of all. You've broken God's law. How can you repair that offense to the king of heaven? You can't, apart from the grace of God in Christ. So everyone is in need of justification. Look at verse 21 here in Romans chapter 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. So there's a possibility of another kind of righteousness apart from the law. And it was taught in the Old Testament. He's going to elaborate that on in, in chapter 4. But then he says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And the key there, the link is through faith. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ, and what is necessary is that you believe. And there's no distinction. The, the Greek and the Jew, there's no distinction. Everyone needs to be saved in this way. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 24, and I'm just going to read this and, and, and make a point I think is helpful uh, to me as I've been taught and come to understand, I think the emphasis on the doctrine of justification we can see from this passage and others is, is important to understand. Notice what he says. 
being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You could look over chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, having been justified by faith. So justification, when we think about the need, everyone has the need to be justified. Justification is an act of God. It's something that he does in time. It's not something that he has done from eternity. It's not something he will do in the future. And it's something definite that he does in connection with a whole big picture of our salvation that needs to be understood in and of itself. Just think about all those terms, predestination, foreknowledge, election, regeneration, calling, sanctification, redemption, adoption, glorification, ransom, imputation, atonement, reconciliation. We could just take time and think about all of those blessings that we have, but this is one, justification. Tyndale said God justifies us actively, and I believe what he was talking about is that this is an act of God. It's not something progressive that goes on in our life or somehow changes. It's a one point in time when someone believes God justifies them. Being justified as a gift, and then Paul says again in Romans chapter 5, Verse 1, having been justified. We have been justified by faith. You put your faith in God, and you're justified. And it's something that God does by his grace. Look at verse 24 again, back in chapter 3. He says, being justified as a gift. That's a translation of a word that could be translated freely. Dorian, Greek word. The same word is used in John 15, 25, where Jesus says that people hated him so that what was written in the law might be fulfilled. They hated him without a cause. They hated him freely. It wasn't something that they hated him because of. It was just they, they hated him. When we think about this passage, being justified as a gift, or freely? This is something God just gives to us? I don't earn it, therefore? Thomas Watson said, what is the source of justification? The cause, the inward impellent motive or ground of justification is the free grace of God. Ambrose expounds this, not of the grace wrought within us, but the free grace of God. It's not that God looks and then finds something that he favors. This is something that he gives as a gift, not because of anything in us, but because he's a gracious God, because he's a merciful God. Watson went on to say, the first wheel that sets all the rest running is the love and favor of God. Justification is a mercy spun out of the bowels of free grace. God does not justify us because we are worthy, but by justifying us makes us worthy. You've heard the song, Grace First Inscribed My Name in God's Eternal Book. I mean, the book of life, book of the Lamb written for the foundation of the world. What was it 
No, it's not God looking down through the corridors of time and seeing something good in my life. It's the free grace of God. It's out of his abundant goodness. One pastor, Barnhouse, used to pastor church in Philadelphia, said there is no reason for grace but grace. Every day we are objects of the grace of God. But in this matter, justification, that's a work of God's grace when he declares us righteous before him. It's not because of something we've done. It's certainly not because we've kept the law. It's not because we got baptized. It's not because we became a member of a church. It's God's free grace. And there are reasons for that. One of the reasons is so that we don't boast. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. This is why salvation is this way, so that no one will boast. There's no one, Paul says in another place, and that can glory in God's presence. So justification is an act of God. It is an act of his free grace. And it doesn't change the sinner's nature from bad to good. God does not make a person in justification holy who is unholy. When God changes a sinner to be Christ-like, that happens in sanctification as he has justified us, and now he's progressively changing us over time. But when we die to go to be with him, we'll be glorified. That's when he changes us utterly. And that's something to look forward to and rejoice in. But that's not justification. But justification is a part of that chain that leads to glorification. Whom he predestined, Paul says in Romans 8, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also, it's interesting there, he doesn't say sanctified. He says glorified. Not that Paul thinks sanctification is not a part of the process, but he's showing the link, the direct link between a person who is justified and glorified. If you have been justified by faith, there's the certainty of glorification. There's the certainty of one day being like Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. Westminster Confession, the pastors who debated and talked and then tried to formulate an expression of Christian doctrine, said, those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. So God's not infusing anything. He's not making you righteous in some way, because if that happened, right, the first time we sinned after we've been justified, we lose it. No, God's not changing us in that way. They go on to say, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but, and we could have a whole other message and focus on this doctrine. He says, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. They, that's talking about believers, receiving and resting on him, on Christ, and his righteousness by faith. I'll read that again. 
not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith, they say, they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. So if someone's been justified, and Paul's talking about justification in Romans chapter 5, but in chapter 6, he's talking about the believer's struggle with sin. In chapter 7, he's talking about the believer's struggle with sin. Chapter 8, he's talking about assurance in that struggle with sin. The very presence of the struggle suggests the presence of an omnipotent person who is with us to help us in that struggle. And by that person, that divine person, we cry out, Abba, Father. And as we do that, we're led by the Spirit of God, and we are the sons of God. This is God at work in us, and that ought to give us encouragement. So let me just, let me just say, if you're struggling with sin, if you're wrestling with sin, that's a good thing. If God is at work in you, and you don't want to sin and you're fighting against it and you're pursuing obedience and you're getting help from God and but sometimes you're failing but you get back up that's really the life of a Christian it's the life of a Christian someone who's confessed faith in Christ believes in Christ and then is going through that in their life could I say to you as well keep on fighting and don't forget the spirit is there with you don't forget to use the sword of the spirit sorry about that don't forget to use the, the sword that God gave us, that Christ exemplified for us, that we use that when we're tempted. We use the sword of the Spirit when the devil comes our way to fight. That's part of our faith, just as we pray and ask for God's help. So justification doesn't change our nature from bad to good. It doesn't make us somehow holy in an absolute sense. The progressive work of changing us over time is sanctification, and we become more and more like Christ. We become more and more, if I could say it this way, we're, we're putting on righteousness. We're following after righteousness. We're doing the things that God has commanded, and as we do those things, it's not that we're ever going to obtain absolute righteousness in this life. We've already been granted that gift. But in our experience, as we put on Christ, we're putting on those ways that are righteous. One day, praise the Lord, we won't be tempted in any way to sin again. And God will have done for us what he promised to do, even when he justified us. Now, stay with me. Justification is an act. Everybody needs justification. It's an act of God's free grace. It doesn't change the sinner's nature from bad to good. It's the act of a judge to declare his judgment. It changes our legal status before God and his law. It's a change in our legal status. Charles Hodge, teacher there at Princeton, back when Princeton was preaching a true gospel, he said, it is a declarative act in which God pronounces the sinner just or righteous, that is, declares that the claims of justice, so far as he is concerned, are satisfied, so that he cannot be justly condemned, but is in justice entitled to the reward promised or due to perfect righteousness. Stay with me. Turn to Zechariah. 
Zechariah Malachi, second to the last book of the Old Testament. See an illustration of this. If you want to study this passage at a later point, because there's a lot more to it than we're going to look at. But I believe what is happening here in this passage is Joshua, human high priest of Israel, standing before the Lord. Here he's called the messenger of the Lord or the angel of the Lord. Satan is standing at the right hand of this high priest to accuse him of his sinfulness and wickedness. So verse 1, we're introduced to this scene. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord here in verse 2 is the same one who's called the angel or the messenger of the Lord. This is, I believe, Christ in the Old Testament. Okay, again, if you want to study this passage later on or talk to me further about it, it's really not the, the point, but it needs to be carefully interpreted. But it is the Lord, verse 2, who is saying to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh, or the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Okay, remember I said this is Joshua, the high priest of Israel. But how is he standing there before the Lord? Look what it says, verse 3, in a way that you would never appear before the Lord as a priest. Filthy garments? It says, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel? So this is a high priest who's not equipped or ready to serve because of the filthy garments that he's wearing. It's representative of the filthy life or the sinful life that needs to be cleansed. And here's the grace of God. Look at the next verse. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. This is a change in Joshua's spiritual life. It's being symbolized by an exchange of garments. He's got filthy garments. They're being exchanged for clean garments. And his iniquity is being taken away. And now he has a clean and festal robe. Verse 5, Zechariah, watching this scene, says there's got to be more because the high priest also wore a turban. And it's like Zechariah listening in and watching is suddenly jumped into the scene and says, the turban too. Put the turban on because Zechariah wants to see the work of God progress. He wants to see this high priest leading Israel in true spiritual leadership. So they put the clean turban on his head, verse 5, and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the idea there is approval. What's the picture? It's really a picture of salvation. It's a picture of cleansing. It's a picture of Satan accusing a sinner guilty. And what's the difference between before and after? Zechariah is not professing his works. And if you thought about the holiest person in Israel, man, it's got to be the high priest. But here he's pictured as filthy. Yeah, he's got to be saved too. 
So this is a wonderful picture of justification. It's a picture of forgiveness. It's a picture of acquittal. It's a picture of what God does for every sinner as he clothes them with festal robes. Ultimately, when we think about the Lord Jesus, it is the robes of his righteousness. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Acts 13, 38 and 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed, or literally the word there is justified from all things. And then Paul says this, from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You can't get forgiveness by the law of Moses. You can't get released from your sins by the law of Moses, by doing the works of the law. The song that came to mind was a song I heard some time ago, Be Ye Glad, Be Ye Glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be glad, be glad, be glad. Zachariah was glad. You think just Joshua was glad. Turn, if you would, back to Romans chapter 3. Thank you for your patience this morning. We're nearly done. What is the basis of that justification? Well, we know it's a gift. We know it's an act of God, and we know it doesn't make us somehow holy. It's a declaration by a judge, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The release, the purchasing back, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That word propitiation means an appeasement of wrath. So Jesus, by dying upon the cross, appeased the wrath of God towards us because of our sin. That is, he died for us, as Peter says, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. It was his death that paid the penalty that I deserved. And let's not forget that it's not just his death, but who he is and what he did. He was the sinless, perfect son of God. The sinless, perfect son of God. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So it's Christ's obedience it's Christ's sacrifice that is the basis for God justifying us. It's a real righteousness. He paid my debt. He earned my place in heaven. He's gone there as a forerunner. He's entered before me by God's grace through faith in him as I trust in him. He has justified me and he's going to bring me with him to glory. It's amazing. Jesus never sinned. And yet he suffered in the place of sinners. 
Jesus never deceived anyone. He never had to repent for anything he did. He never was disciplined for defying Mary or Joseph. He never complained or had a wrong attitude. He never lost his temper and sinful anger. He never lusted after a woman. He was never unloving or unkind. He never abused others. He always did what pleased the Father. Jesus said, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And then he asked them later in that chapter, John chapter 8, verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? That's what he asked his accusers. And of course, they couldn't. The only thing they could get him on is that he confessed to be the Christ, which he was. The high priest said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell me whether you're the Christ. And he said, I am. And hereafter, you'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's like saying yes, yes, and yes. And yet that same mediator, that same one who came from heaven, that same sinless one, died, crucified, his hands pierced, his feet pierced his brow pierced, bleeding, dying on a cross, not for anything that he did, but for what I did, for what you did. You put your faith and trust in him? Have you found salvation in Jesus Christ? Have you come to rest in his sacrifice? You see, you think about what you're offering to God. If you're trying to offer something to God, it's almost, I would say it's an insult. To say that somehow what you're offering to God is of equal worth or somehow you could achieve his favor when it cost him the blood of his own dear son. Praise the Lord for the obedience of Christ. Praise the Lord for his active obedience, his passive obedience, his suffering upon the cross. And obviously, in light of all that, justification has to be received by faith. We've seen it already in the passage. Paul has said, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. He goes into the next chapter and emphasizes that Abraham, it was faith apart from any works. David, faith apart from any works, whereby they obtained that same justification. That righteousness that is available to us comes through faith. Paul says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we could take time to see what Rome teaches. As you explore what Rome teaches, taught in the time of the Reformation, and still teaches this day, justification comes through baptism. Justification comes through penance. Justification can be lost and regained. That's not the teaching of Scripture. Paul says in Romans 3, down verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then again, Rome, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So I just ask you today, what are you trusting in? 
for your standing before God? Are you trusting in Christ's work on your behalf? Are you trusting in yourself? Have you come to the point where you have trusted, where you've placed your faith in him? You come to rest upon what he's done and receive him. And then, of course, as you rest in what he's done and receive him, while we would look at the Gospels and see that repentance is also a part of what takes place, it's not based upon the fact that you repent that God says, now I'll save you, but repentance is a part of that response to God when you believe in Christ. It's like the other side of a coin. Faith on one side, repentance on the other. Those two go together. You see it in Zacchaeus's life. You see it in Mary Magdalene's life. You see it whenever a sinner turns to God, they turn away from their sin. And I would be remiss if I didn't say something about repentance because it's, it is faith alone. But when there is genuine faith, there's also repentance that comes with it. And they're the works that follow. They inevitably follow, someone said. The works of a true believer. So have you put your trust in Christ? Have you turned from your sins and believed on Jesus Christ? And are you resting upon him alone? John Calvin called justification by faith the main hinge on which salvation turns. Thomas Cranmer said that justification was the strong rock and foundation of the Christian religion. Luther, you can imagine he would say something like this. He called it the chief article of Christian doctrine. When justification has fallen, everything has fallen. He says this doctrine quoting here, begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God, and without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Watson said justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous, like a defect in a foundation or a crack. May the Lord help us to hold fast to his word, to believe the truth, and proclaim the truth. There could be somebody even here today, and you have never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you come to him today? Would you turn from your sins today? Put your faith and trust in what he has done on the cross. Put your faith in his resurrection. Put your faith in the gospel message. Would you do that today? Scripture says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a call of faith. It's a call for God's rescue of you. Certainly involves belief in your heart that God exists. And according to Paul in that passage, it's belief in the resurrection of Christ. When a person believes, it results in righteousness, that gift given. And that's what God offers. It's a free gift. But it can be held out to you. And you cannot take it. And many people don't take it. But would you take it today? Would you come to Christ? Jesus, of course, offers that. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. You're trying to earn salvation for yourself. Jesus says, come to me. 
Put your trust in me. May the Lord help you today. Let's pray. Lord, we bow in gratefulness for such a plan of salvation, for such a mercy that you would devise such a plan for us as sinners. Give us the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the free gift of eternal life, full salvation through faith alone. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has not yet put their trust, their full trust in Jesus Christ, they've not yet bowed the knee They've not yet turned from their sins. We pray even today that today would be the day of their salvation. And for us, Lord, who believe, we pray that we might rejoice in the teaching of Scripture, that we'd rejoice in the preaching of the gospel, and that we'd be ready to share it and tell others about it. Give us grace, we pray. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.